I'm Eamon Murtar. Welcome to What Goes Around. I'm Deb Grant. Welcome to What Goes Around. And in this week's show, I give myself an enormous plug because um, I've got an enormous sink. No, because like a phoenix, I'm rising from the flames and I am born again. We're also going to be talking to the academic and uh, Clash fan, Gregor Gall. He's written a book focused specifically on Joe Strummer's politics. So uh, we're getting a bit political today. A little bit political, but we're going to end up with a chat with one of the nicest men we have spoken to on this podcast. The fantastic keyboard player and living legend that is Brian Auger. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't heard the name, you've heard the music and he has played with everyone. Who's he played with, Deb? Uh, Sonny Boy Williamson, he's played with Elton John, Long John Baldry, he was in the Trinity with uh, Julie Driscoll, he's played with Rod Stewart, um, Dr. John. There's... Wait, 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 stop, 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 or we'll be here all day, we've got a show to do, let's pod. <laughs> let's pod. I'm podding. E to the Amen. <laughs> e to the you gotta, you gotta cut that out. You gotta cut that out. <laughs> never, never. <laughs> I never cut out anything that you get wrong in an intro. <laughs> this is podcasting, it's not radio. I would say you're making me look bad, but I do it to myself. Amen, my friend. What goes Thank around? Ah, oh, well, it's all good news this month. All good news, mm-hmm. my friend Deb. Um, so uh, basically, the sun is shining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank God for that. It That's was very news. wet and, and dark for a few months. Mm-hmm. The sun is shining. I'm settling into Bristol life. And I finally got myself a brand new residency. Yes. Yeah. Tell me more. This is good news. Well, I'm very excited. It's um, at the Phoenix in Bristol, which is a lovely pub, just kind of tucked away behind Cabot Circus. And those in Bristol will know mm. Cabot Circus. And isn't that the perfect isn't... name, a phoenix, just like that's you, it, Amy? That's what I was going to say. I'm rising from the ashes of my desperate flight from London, like a beautiful fiery bird ready to spread disco across the town. Yes. So, yeah, I'm in there and um, I'm very much looking forward to it. And uh, the people at the Phoenix have been so kind. They've been really, really supportive and they've gone out and bought some decks for me. And a mixer, and they've um, they've got behind me in terms of like you know they're going to give it the long haul, and they're um, they they seem very nice. I'm going to do monthlies last Friday of the month, starting this month, which is so it'll only be a week or so away, mm. and it's going to be eight till one, and it's going to be called We Climb Disco Mountain, yes, with Black Wax Solution. And the reason I called it We Climb Disco Mountain is because uh, during the lockdown, you know, we did all those Stream of Dream things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so every week I was playing from my front room. And I listened in desk. the bath. Did you listen in the bath? I oh, did, that's yeah. nice. That's <laughs> nice. I like to know where people are. Yeah. I have a friend who listened to it on top of a mountain in Canada, and I was like, well, Jill. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that's how you do it, isn't it? But um, yeah, he said he snowboarded down to some of it, which sounds, wow. sounds particularly Show great, off. doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Anyway, big shout to Johnny, um, my man in Canada, my Canadian correspondent. Uh, but. Um, yeah, I did all these Stream of Dreams, and one of the things we did, which I really enjoyed, was that we just took an amble through my record collection, and I could play any old stuff, which was always good fun, because I've got lots of old stuff to play. But the, the thing was, we always ended up climbing Disco Mountain, and I thought that's, that was really fun. So th- that's what we're going to do. We're going to play pretty much anything on the way up, but you can be guaranteed, for the last hour and a bit, we will have Disco. I love that. That's a very... Um... Yes, it's like a perfectly illustrative 
uh, title for the the night. Have yeah, it's, you, like, you... it's like Ronsil made it or something <laughs> on the tin. Yes, exactly. God, Gen Z won't get that reference, will they? Not that there's yeah. any Gen Z. <laughs> um, that's exciting, Eamon. So you played your first. You played. You played your first gig there, presumably. Yeah, so we did a little warm-up gig last month, um, and that was um, really nice. We didn't tell anyone about it. It was like a secret. We just wanted Ooh. to test the water. Um, but people really liked it, and they were very friendly, and the pub is really nice. It's got a really big um, sort of mezzanine back garden. So I, like, I'm playing in the corner, and then it goes out to a little dance space and then up steps to a really nice garden. And... Uh, yeah, punters were delightfully lovely. No one really gave me any hassle. And it just seems like it's going to be a lovely thing. And after I did that, they asked me to do their pride celebration as well. So wow. I think July 9th, I will be doing um, a disco special pride night there. That's so exciting. Oh, it's so nice to know that you've gone somewhere where you're appreciated. I am the phoenix from the flames. I rise again. You do. You have. (laughs) Magnificently. Oh, I'm very pleased for you. That's brilliant. I'm quite looking forward to the Pride Night as well, because I'm, you know, the disco basically is one of the great gay art forms. I mean, undoubtedly, it is is a gay art form. Mm. And uh, what a better thing to play on Pride Day than that. So I'm going to whip out all my Sylvester tunes. And we're going to be tops off down the front, having it large. <laughs> Come along, it'll be nice. Gregor Gall is a visiting professor of industrial relations at the University of Glasgow and University of Leeds, a regular contributor to The Guardian, to HuffPo, The Scotsman, and an editor of the Scottish Left Review, an author of a biography about the late RMT General Secretary Bob Crow, and now he has written a book about the punk rock politics of Joe Strummer. Gregor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Up until now, it seems like most of your writing is focused more on politics rather than music. What made you decide to uh, focus on Joe Strummer for this book? Well, it was the politics uh, of, or it is the politics of Joe Strummer. I, as a, as a young teenager, um, a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, saw The Clash play at Brixton Academy three times in 1984. And that was a, a kind of like an epiphany in a way about how powerful music, which clearly had a left-wing message, could be, especially when it was performed live, especially when you had a front person as charismatic and as confident and as articulate as Joe Strummer. And so that cemented very much my interest in The Clash and interest in Joe Strummer. But the specific reason as to why I wanted to write this book was that in talking to other people who were interested in The Clash and interested in Joe Strummer, the, the one phrase that sort of recurred again and again and again was that Strummer changed their lives and that The Clash changed their lives. I wanted to find out more about what was meant by that. I had assumed their eyes were open to um, left-wing politics, a particular brand of left-wing politics that Joe Strummer espoused. But um, without doing the research, which meant taking testimony from uh, many fans, uh, I couldn't actually make that a clear conclusion, and that's why I did the work to, to write this book. And when you talk about his particular brand of, of sort of left-wing politics, how do you define his sort of fundamental beliefs? Uh, I think there's, there's really three parts to his life in terms of his politics. There's the period um, prior to the clash where 
he is aware of events going on in the world. Um, given that he was born in 1952, he, if you like, came of age as a 16-year-old in 1968 when the world was in revolt in terms of the um, protests against the Vietnam War, civil rights movement in America, um, the development of women's rights and uh, gay rights, all those kind of things were going on. But in his first two bands, The Vultures and then The 101ers, he never put them into any of his lyrics. Most of his songs were essentially love songs or songs about growing up. But when he was recruited to join The Clash, the uh, sort of Svengali figure that put The Clash together, a person called Bernie Rhodes, said to Joe Strummer, as the lyricist, um, write about what's important, don't write about love songs. And therefore, Strummer was then able to draw on all these things that I've just mentioned, these events. So he increasingly becomes... Um, uh, a socialist of a firm conviction. He's willing to identify himself as that. And that period, I suppose, lasts in terms of his own life from the late 70s until the late 1980s, even though the clash formally ended in uh, early 1986. And then the final part to his, um, the kind of period of his life with regard to his politics is that he becomes a humanist. Um, he, unfortunately, in my view, becomes rather disillusioned with the with socialist politics, with the prospects for um, change in Britain, particularly uh, under Tony Blair. And he therefore develops this um, humanist perspective and it's very much captured in one of his well-known sayings, which was, which is, without people you're nothing. Mm. I mean, there's a lot more to it than that, but that in a sense is one of the things that encapsulates. Um, so it's about being multicultural. And it's about being tolerant of people from different communities, whether within Britain or those coming into Britain. It's about um, understanding and valuing diversity. Towards the end of his life, um, particularly when the Mescaleros are formed and are playing from 99 on, onwards to 2002 when he dies, uh, he is in favour, he says this in different interviews in Britain and America, that he's in favour of ethical capitalism. Mm. He, for example, and I quote this in the book, he says that um, democracy is now a sham and the only uh, vote that you have, and this is when you're speaking in America, he said, the only vote you essentially have is the dollar in your pocket. Mm -hmm. So rather than go and spend it in Starbucks or McDonald's, go and spend it in a local shop that's family run, that's locally run. And that's the way to try to affect um, economic and political change. And that clearly represents a downgrading and a narrowing of his um, political ambitions. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to come to that point because, I mean, in the book, he's quoted a lot as saying he wants the Clash to be the biggest band in the world, but he doesn't want them to lose their message. Do you think moving towards ethical capitalism was sort of a way of him reconciling that, or was he just kind of disillusioned? How did he reconcile those two things? How he reconciled the, uh, the, the, the great contradiction between wanting to be a radical political band, left-wing band, and becoming very, very commercially successful was that the, the, he, he split up the clash. Essentially, that's mm. what happens. First casualty, if you like, is the, the drummer, Nicky Chopperheadon, who uh, has an addiction to heroin, and that doesn't fit with Strummer's politics about saying, basically, take control of your life, don't use drugs, and he... he in most cases, ceases using drugs or uses soft drugs only after then. Mm. Then the next casualty uh, is Mick Jones, who's one of the founding members. Uh, and it's ironic that the last gig that Mick Jones played was uh, the US Festival in uh, Southern California at San Bernardino. And the reason I say it's ironic is that the clash that day 
uh, play to 150,000 people in, if you like, the belly of the beast. It's California, it's uh, United States. That's the biggest um, audience they ever played to, live audience they ever played to. That's, in a way, how Joe Strummer um, reconciles those pressures about wanting to be the biggest politically progressive band in the world. The two things have to go together. Um, Joe Strummer was very critical of bands like Crass, who um, he regarded as being purist in what they said. Mm. But the consequence of that meant that they didn't have a big audience. He was rather dismissive of them, saying that all they wanted to do was play in, in kind of small groups and in communes. Mm. And so Strummer w wanted to take that message and saw that the company, the record company that Clash was signed to, CBS, he saw it as just a means to an end. After splitting The Clash or ending The Clash in 1986, Strummer never really resolves the issues in his mind, partly because he feels um, very guilty about breaking up what he regarded as you know, um, the best band in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and he then has a period of, of what are known as his wilderness years before he forms the Mescaleros in the late 1990s. Mm -hmm. And I suppose in that, in that band, he has a sense of coming to reconcile the tensions because the, the politics of the Mescaleros, the lyrics that he writes for them, are on a par with The Clash. They're maybe not quite as left-wing, but he is signed to Hellcat Records that uh, Tim Armstrong of the band Rancid um, mm -hmm. formed, and therefore there weren't quite such great pressures. It meant that while he could have the artistic control um, that he wanted over the, over the band in, in terms of the record label, the record label itself didn't have the resources to promote his music, his band, maybe in a way that CBS had. Even though there were great problems, I think he managed it better than many others who aspire to use their uh, music as a, a platform for a political message. Yeah, I mean, I love how his criticism of Crass was that, you know, they're not doing enough to be commercially successful and get their music out there, as if their music ever could. Do you know what I mean? Like, the Clash are writing these incredibly commercially appealing, catchy songs, you know, as if Crass could have been doing the same thing. I mean, it's an entirely different brand of music, really, isn't it? It is. Um, I think... Um, there were probably uh, three waves of punk um, from the late 70s or the mid 70s into the early 1980s. So there was the original bands, whether that be um, The Damned, The Clash or The Sex Pistols. Mm -hmm. Then there was the bands which came after them, which um, took inspiration. And I think Crass was, uh, if you like, although not necessarily formed at the same time, it was more like the third generation of punk bands who were, in my estimation, quite tuneless. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that ties in with what you're saying that Crass were not musicians, never really sought to be musicians, uh, and it wasn't the kind of music that would have a wider appeal, even though there was something obviously quite political in what they were saying because they were an anarchist band. So maybe Crass should have taken a leaf out of the Clash's book um, <laughs> and tried to be more tuneful in order to make themselves more readily acceptable in a musical terms, but acceptable therefore also in uh, getting their music out to a wider um, audience. Yeah, yeah. It's just hard to imagine what that would sound like. Finally then, what what do you hope people will take away from the book? I mean, politically and in terms of their opinion of Joe Strummer. The first thing I, that I would like people to take away from, and it's a, a general point, is that Joe Strummer showed that music can be used as a battleground in a, in a political struggle. Mm. What I mean by that is that he decided quite explicitly, quite clearly, that music as a form of culture can be used to, to attack uh, the right, attack racists, attack fascists, attack, attack Nazis, but also promote 
ideas, and even though I said earlier that he was not always specific about what he was for, you can implicitly get an understanding of what the kind of things he was for. So music is a way of countering other ideas in, in, you know, in politics today. That's the first thing. So that's a lesson I think that the left needs to learn because if you are a revolutionary or a radical in left-wing terms, um, you must have an understanding that, that most ordinary people are not going to want to read a long political tract. They're not going to decide to read the three volumes of Das Kapital by Karl Marx as an introduction to politics. They're going to need something that's more, if you like, bite-sized, more digestible. And that, I think, is something that music can do. So that would be the, the general point. I've no doubt that I'll still be talking about Joe Strummer in 20 years. I'm sure you will as well, and plenty more people too. Uh, the book is called The Punk Rock Politics of Joe Strummer. Gregor Gall, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Today we welcome a musical legend to the show. Keyboardist Brian Auger is a musician steeped in the golden age of rock and roll. They say you can judge a man by the company he keeps, and Brian Auger has worked with some of the greatest of all time. The Yardbirds, Rod Stewart, Julie Driscoll, Jimi Hendrix, Long John Baldry, Eric Burden, Alphonse Muzon, and a whole host of others. And through his band, Brian Auger's Oblivion Express, he shared the stage with everyone, and I mean everyone, from Earth, Wind & Fire to Led Zeppelin and Frank Zappa. Over 50 years performing at the very top level, so we are more than excited to talk to Brian about his phonographic memories. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm gonna, I say steady on, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I think every, every, every chat is good to start with a little bit of light sort of um, complimentary action, you know, letting you know that we love you. Well, I tell you what I mean. I am, I am overwhelmed, actually. I'm uh, ready to uh, really let fly and tell you all my absolutely... Uh, filthy secrets. Oh my about God. This is what we want. Rubbing our hands together with glee. As are the people listening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, first of all, obviously you have this big retrospective of your music coming out, uh, you know, on Soul Bank. Yep. They're really digging into the archives and putting out a lot of your stuff. And presumably this has attracted um, a lot of people, journalists, music people back in your direction. Are you being bombarded now with people sort of wanting to pay tribute to your musical legacy? Well, I don't know whether they're, you know, I've, I've certainly spoken to a lot of people that, mm. uh, you know, I, I suppose the uh, the one that that kind of like really surprised me after the um, the Guardian interview, uh, the phone rang. It was about eight thirty in the morning. Uh, I picked it up. I didn't recognise the number. It was it was coming from, from Canada. This voice said, "Hello, Brian, is that you?" and I mean, what am I supposed to say at that point? So I said, wait a minute, let me have a look in the mirror. Right, yes, yes, it definitely is me. The voice said, 
Brian, this is this is Elton. I'm up in Canada oh. though. I'm doing some stuff. And I was blown away because I didn't. I, you know, I mean, I, in passing, we'd seen each other in different bands, but we'd never really sat down and had a talk or anything, you know. Mm. And he was he was so kind and gracious, and uh, uh, he said, "Look, I've only got you know a couple of minutes here, but uh, you know, I, I'm." What I'd like to do at some point, if our paths ever cross in the right way, maybe we could sit down and have a dinner and uh, have a good natter about mm. all the stuff that went on around about. Because I used to follow you and the Steam Packet around. The Steam Packet was the yeah. uh, the original band with Long John Baldry, um, Julie Driscoll, uh, Rod Stewart, who was unknown at the time, <laughs> and the rest of the band. It was my rhythm section. So uh, there it was, and I happened to mention on on somewhere or other, I think it was probably in the interview, that there was a lady from Jamaica, <laughs> uh, Winifred Atwell. Mm -hmm. And Winifred used to play all these kind of boogies and rags and stuff, you know, which I copied. And um, mm. I happened to mention her, and, he, you know, the next morning the phone rings... Hello, Brian, it's, it's me. <laughs> he said, look, I'm really sorry. Yesterday, I forgot to tell you that, you know, Winifred Atwell was somebody that I really loved. Mm. And so we had a little conversation about Winifred Atwell. Winifred Atwell was a Jamaican uh, piano player who had gone through all the, you know, the, 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 the classical scene, could play anything. But I think in those days, since way back in the 50s, that, um, you know, you didn't see black people playing in front of a big orchestra, you know, in town. And mm. uh, so she turned to, fortunately for a load of us, uh, she she turned to, uh, to Boogie and Rag and had several hits. Even uh, my, my buddy... You know, dear buddies actually told me that he was a big fan of hers as well. Mm. That was Keith Emerson, mm. and I, yeah. I, you know, it made, made it's me like laugh. A keyboard union. <laughs> yes. uh, Elton says, "Look, I'm only calling you. I'm saying, oh, I better, I better, I'm like disturbing your breakfast, but uh, you know, I forgot to tell you yesterday that I love Winifred Atwell. She was one of the people that really turned me on, and so we had a, you know." Uh, a five-minute kind of talk about Winifred Atwell and what was going on at the time, and uh, said, "Look, I've got to get going. Actually, I, you know, I've got a plane to catch." So I mm. said, "Well, I hope you've got a really big net then." <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Brits, man! They they never give up their kind of loony humour, you know. I was pretty amazed when that one came through, because okay. although uh, you know, obviously the guy is an absolute mega star. He turned out to be a really great person. I love that, um, <laughs> you know, even though you and Emerson and Elton John have all had these amazing, colossal, glittering careers, you basically all still relate to each other the same way that we all do. Do you know, have you heard this one? Oh, God, I love that album. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You're having this, yeah. you know, if you're really into music, it doesn't matter what age you are or how successful you are. There's always time for that chat, isn't it? There? There's always time for that. Oh, yes, there certainly that is. And I mean, the, the, the amazing thing about Keith was he, <laughs> he was a very funny guy in his own way. And uh, 
you know, so we, we love getting together and swapping, you know, tales. But we found out that when we went through a list of people that, that really had a big influence on us, they were the same. Mm. <laughs> so this is a musical thing that has absolutely blown me away, actually, because here am I, you know, I suppose, I, you know, I went on to the jazz side because that's what I'd been listening to and carrying, and he was, you know, from the classical side, and yet we'd been influenced by the same people. So, mm. so we had a good laugh about that, you know. I used to just record things that I liked, and somebody came up and said, well, I think it was one of my managers, look, uh, the, you know, this isn't really organic. And I said, you're kidding, Sonny. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what the hell do you mean? He says, well, you you know, you've got a pavan here and it's kind of classical and then you've got these other things, that are this, that. I said, you know, I like, those are things that I love, you know. Mm. Um, so I thought I would introduce, the, you know, the general public to those things. Mm. I said, well, I mean, you know, uh, anyway, I thought to myself, well, this is very strange. Then I saw a lady called Joan Bakewell, mm. believe it or not, mm. who was on BBC Two and had a show. And when uh, Duke Ellington came to, to England, um, I was I, I leapt up and down. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I saw him interviewed by Joan Bakewell. And at one mm. point she says... Uh, excuse me, Duke, but uh, what what music do you like then? You know, what are, what do you listen to? What do you like? He said, and he said, God bless him. He said, there's only two types of music, good and bad. Mm -hmm. You it's know, true. <laughs> true. I, I went, Eureka and Hallelujah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and it's amazing because I ended up uh, taking a pavan uh, by Foray, mm -hmm. Gabriel Foray, a French composer. Mm -hmm. Which I, you know, I thought was beautiful, and um, when I heard the the, the 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 chord sequence that, you know, underpinned the uh, the melody, I thought that's a jazz tune, mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so uh, I ended up actually making a, a track of that, which was uh, I think he wrote it around about eighteen ninety six or something like that, you know. And it just pointed out the fact that m good music is good music. It's yeah. just going to go on yeah. being good music forever. So there we are. I'm, I'm curious as well. I mean, the, the Guardian article that you were talking about, the, the crux of that, they were basically saying that, you know, you weren't sort of tempted by the sort of drugs aspect or the sort of bad behavior aspect of the whole rock and roll scene, that you were very much focused on the music. I mean, even now, like... Looking at pictures of you now, you look pretty much exactly the same as you did then, which is not oh. what can be said for a lot of people. You've, from, you've from aged like a fine yeah. wine. Um, exactly. But, um, oh, Deb, I, I, I bet you say that to all the piano players. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not. Only you, probably. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, clearly your passion well, is with the music. I mean, is that something that, that's, you know... That, ha that happened in, a, in a, a kind of a way that was a big kind of lesson, you know, mm. And the fact was um, that, you know, we, we, we started off playing in pubs and uh, I used to have a line of drinks on the top of the piano 
Well, not not a good thing. But, um, mm. you know, um, people would just want to buy you a drink. Oh, I've got to buy you a drink, you know. Mm. Say, yeah, I'll have a, you know, a soda or something like that. And they, they, they said, no, no, a real drink. I want to buy you a real drink. And um, after a while... What I realized was I could I could drink and, and get up in the morning and it didn't bother me. Mm. But when I was playing, I realized that at a certain point, my, my precision was mm. not as it was supposed to be. Mm. And, and uh, you know, I would, I would tell, uh, my brain would say, right, it'll be good to play this here. And uh, my fingers would say, Oh no, you're not playing that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so. In the end, you know, it was either it was either drink or play, mm. and uh, yeah. I thought, well, there's no no contest, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it kind of just you know wasn't something that I couldn't turn off, and I did, and uh, you know, it's it's been one of those things I couldn't have, you know. I wouldn't, wouldn't want to take something that was going to actually prevent me from playing at my maximum. Yeah. Shall we shall we dig into your, or begin to dig into your phonographic memories then? The first one you picked is Bumping on Sunset by Wes yeah. Montgomery. Why have you picked this one? Well, because I was listening for things that, that, uh, that really stood out that I could actually do, you know, I wanted to play mm. myself and several other musicians used to hang out in this damp basement in the Askew Road <laughs> Shepherd's Bush mm. that's where it all mm. comes from and uh, on on the weekends and we bring out our record collection or, or something that we wanted to point out to people and the one that blew me away was when I heard Bumping on Sunset by Wes mm. I just fell in love with it immediately. I said, I, I, I've got to, you know, I, I've got to learn that and I, I've got to do my own uh, version of mm. it. I got a letter from from Wes's wife after he passed oh, wow. away. He passed away. He was only like 42 years old, I think. Yeah. You know, uh, and all of a sudden, there you go. Mm. Uh, anyway, she said that that was the best cover of that tune that she'd heard. And wow. I was oh, I absolutely you. like, uh, that was such a compliment that uh, I didn't know how to handle it. Thank you. 
And a little bit later, quite a long way later, I was playing in downtown Chicago in a club there. And uh, it was freezing outside. <laughs> Just as I got to the, the front door and I was about to go in, this voice said to me, uh, yeah, Bri, you know, uh, actually he had an uh, American accent because we were in America. <laughs> anyway, I stopped and this bundle of rags kind of came out from a doorway next next to it and said, hey man, I know, I know something that you don't know, you know? And I said, well, wait a minute, you must be freezing, you know? Mm. Uh, have you got a place to go, you know? And he said, uh, no, 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 but I wanted to tell you, man, you know that bumping on Sunset you, you play? And I said, yeah. And he said, I used to go to a black ballroom in South Chicago every Tuesday night. And I said, yeah. And he said, the DJ would put that on and everybody would get up and line dance to it. <laughs> and I tried to kind of conjure up that image, actually. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. So I said, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, that kind of, that, that's music for you. You never know where it's going to turn up. Yeah. You know, or what, or what people are going to make of it. So there you go. Have you discovered that with other songs of yours that they've showed up in unexpected places or you've heard stories about them? I was kind of amazed at one point that somebody in, I can't remember who it was actually, in one of the houses of uh, the Senate that was um, enamoured with uh, happiness is just around the bend. Mm. Uh, and and that, that one had all sorts of lives, you know, that went you know, everywhere. You just never know where, where any of this is going to turn up or uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing. And there was another thing that was even more... Uh, strange. I was in uh, New Zealand doing a tour in New Zealand and uh, uh, with Dr. John's band as well. They're a oh. great guy as oh, well. Yeah, great that's great. And so we were having a tremendous time. And in New Zealand, the Maori have been given back a lot of the lands that were kind of, you know, had a Union Jack mm. stuck in them at one point. Mm. Thank God. <laughs> so. so we got a call from the chief of the the whole of all these all these Maori lands, and uh, he said, you know, apparently, would you like would you like to have a welcome ceremony? And I, I you know, I said, oh, absolutely, you know. Mm. I said, is John is is Doctor John coming? Yes, they're coming as well. I said, fantastic, you know. So um, we go to this welcoming ceremony, which is in a park, you know, and they. On the path into it, there were feathers and different things that were strewn around. And uh, mm. uh, one of the guys, the Maori guys who accompanied us said, don't touch any of that. <laughs> you know, just step around it and go down to where the stage is. And there are two benches there and uh, you, can, you can sit there, you know. So we go down there, we sit down and this guy steps forward and uh, in a kind of a very... Uh, uh, polemic way sing something in Maori and I, I leaned to a couple of guys who were translating for it and I said what the hell was that all about he said he's telling you what the hell are you doing on our land you know and uh, <laughs> <laughs> the usurpers 
and uh, stuff like that. And I thought, wow, I thought this was a welcoming ceremony. So wait a minute. And then another guy steps forward and sings this Maori song, which which was, you know, I said, well, what, what was that? He said that this was the, uh, the other side of that. Uh, this guy says, never mind about that. You are most welcome as visitors and we love to have you here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that was what he sang. And so uh, I, I was, I kind of relaxed. I thought, well, this is great, you know. And then one, somebody tapped me on the shoulder from behind. It was one of these Maori guys and said, uh, <clears throat> he said, uh, it's your turn to sing. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> and there was a big crowd there as well of people sitting in the, in the grass and, uh, you know, taking it all in. And so I said, well, God, I got up and I didn't know what the hell. Then I realized that there was a song I wrote on the, uh, uh, probably the last thing actually, on, on the Street Noise album, Looking in the Eye of the World. So I thought, well, I don't know why I actually wrote that and put it there and then, it was years ago. And I suddenly realized this is the moment for that song. This is why you wrote it. Mm. And so I stepped forward and sang a cappella, you know, I sang, uh, I'm searching for a way, I'm looking for the day to make the sun appear. And when that time is here, I'd like to dissipate the fear that I see when I'm looking in the eye of the world. <laughs> Still the same old story, defend your territory from the others, from your brothers, all of whom I see looking back at me when I'm looking in the eye of the world. That was it. Mm. And I stepped back. Dr. John, who was sitting in front of me, and I sat down, turned around and shook my hand. said, you're a good guy, Brian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, well... So that was what that was all for. <laughs> Amazing. And then... And then they lined us up and all these ladies lined up and they said, right now, the elders are going to welcome you. And I said, well, how does this work? He said, well, no, you've got to rub noses with this big line of, wow. this big line of ladies. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went, wow, I've never done this, anything like this before. So I did. All of us did, you know, we rubbed noses. And I can tell you something, if you rub noses with somebody, you know whether you're welcome or not. <laughs> I've got a feeling myself, myself and Deb are going to have to improve the way we welcome our guests now. Yeah. I don't think it's be, don't think the in the age of COVID we can do the nose rubbing, but I'm sure we can sing a song or right. something. Right. Yeah. Right. So watch out, then, Deb. Yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> exactly. Your second choice is "Freedom Jazz Dance" by Eddie Harris. Yeah. He's another fantastic jazz legend. Uh, we had. Uh, Deli Sushali from Felicute's band on the other week, and he chose an Eddie right. Harris track, Cold Duck. Tell us why Freedom Jazz Dance uh, has memories for you and, and, and how you came across it. I was, you know, I had some records from uh, Eddie Harris, and, I, uh, and one that I turned up and put on, there was this ridiculous melody, man, you know. And I thought, oh, man. I've got to play that. <laughs> oh. mm -hmm. And uh, I had to kind of invent 
fingering and jump, you know, because it really wasn't a piano melody. It was all in fourths and mm. with a turnaround. And, uh, and so I, I proceeded with that to practice it, you know. And then this is how ridiculous it is. Um, I was on Atlantic Records at the time. And um, we went. We actually went to uh, uh, America to, to tour, and I went up to, uh, to say hello to everybody at uh, Atlantic. And I knocked on the door of the promotion guy, Big Big M, <laughs> Mario Medius, the mm. Big M. I didn't know, know anything about this guy, but he was the funniest guy, man. He was wonderful, and. Uh, one of my tracks was playing, I think it was Listen Here. And he's got the phone and he's saying, yeah, and listen to this, you know. And he said, wait a minute, he's here. And he gives me the phone. I said, who is this? So it's Eddie Harris. Oh, <laughs> oh, wow. no. how, can that, how can that work? So I said hello to Eddie and Eddie was very nice, man. You know, I didn't tell him I was working on Freedom Jazz Dance, but I worked harder on it after that oh, and got it, I got it together, you know. <laughs> Because I reckoned that, you know, the universe had kind of like turned up something where you're going to play this, yeah. so you better get you better get it together. I was just going to say, um, is that kind of how it worked for you when you were just spawning around? Would you hear a tune and then suddenly, like, you know, one in every ten tunes you'd hear, you'd, you'd suddenly have to get hold of that tune and have to right. have it come through you right. and play it out? Was it was it like a real compulsion when you heard the right tune that you had to do it? You had to do your own version and bring it out? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that and the fact that, you know, a lot of... Uh, a lot of the musical ideas, I mean, I, you know, come from sitting in a room or trying to find a space that's quiet mm. so that I can hear what's going on because there's music going on in there all day, every day. And mm. uh, some of it's good, some of it's bad, but it all comes from there, you know. And uh, even 
even the great composers, all of them were great improvisers. But they wrote, they 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 got to the point where there was nothing that they could record with. So they learned how to write for strings and brass and woodwind and all those things and a choir, and they could actually write this stuff down. But it all comes from the same place, you know. I, I love um, the idea of just having that that urge and that you know because I don't have the musical skills to do it. But uh, I, what I tend to do is I, I'll get the record and I'll play it and play it and play it and play it. You know, but it, to, to be able to pick a tune out that speaks to you in some way and then to get your brain to tell your fingers to play that tune and, and find your own way of expressing yourself through it, that must be a really rewarding feeling. Oh, it is. It, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the most amazing and magical things uh, I think in my life is that, uh, you know, I have to hear a tune and then to visualize it. Well, I wouldn't put that chord there. I'd do this or I'd add the seventh or the major seventh or whatever, you know, and kind of update it to the way I hear it. Um, and also it was a way to introduce a lot of people. Um, you know, I was trying to make this bridge between rock and roll and jazz because mm. i came out of the mm. jazz world you know and there were people that when i when i started to do sessions for the uh, for the rock and roll community decided that they weren't going to talk to me anymore right it was a certain snobbery to jazz at that time i understand that because i was one you know no. <laughs> so um anyway that that, that basically you know, I, I I think that was one of the ones that, you know, I'd hear something and I'd hear it and, and I'd hear it the way I would do it and and arrange it in that way. I was just going to ask you, do you think, um, where does that musical sort of, it's not a musical instinct that you have or do you think it was just practice? What do you think it is about you and your musicality that meant you could just so fluidly hear something and know how to sort of translate it into your own musical style? Well, it's funny you should ask me that, Steph, because I'm going to answer it now. Mm. <laughs> yes, please. No, when I was around about three years old, four years old, we had a, a piano that was called a, a pianola. Mm. And yeah. What happened is you had a, a bobbin of, uh, of paper with slots in it. it uh, the slots had been, uh, you know, made kind of mechanically, but they they could produce this role of music and they still i've probably used that system at some of the state fairs with the carousels you know you see mm. this stuff coming down anyway we had one of those and um we had my dad had collected all these ro all these roles of music and so we had all the operas in this mm. form we had um, ragtime which i loved uh and other odds and ends like the, you know, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata and et cetera, et cetera, you know. So I used to be on the pedals because the pedals drove this machine to, to driven by air. You know, I'd pedal like crazy. I, I found out how to put the little, you know, hook up the, uh, the actual roll itself. And the roll was drawn down over a grid with holes in it, you know, piece of, 
and, and which corresponded to the notes on the piano. And so the piano played, and I would look at it hanging onto the underneath of uh, of the keyboard, you know, and pedaling away like some demented cyclist. Uh, <laughs> and I was fascinated by this. And all these wonderful melodies, you know, I would know them um, just by the label on the box. I couldn't read at that time, but, you know, uh, I'd be able to pick them out. And uh, so one of my favourites was the William Tell Overture, mm. you know, by Rossini, etc. And uh, I used to watch the piano play that. Uh, and then I suddenly realised that the division of the piano it was the same eight notes, you know, repeated but higher up. Mm. And so I... The, the, the thought occurred to me somehow or other that if I played the same thing, uh, an, an octave high, I didn't know what an octave was, but the same note, but higher up, what would happen? And what happened was I could play along with it. You know, or, or a little bit. So bit by bit, I learned bits and pieces here and there of all these different amazing tunes. Wow. Um, it's like a technical uh, curiosity of the sort of mechanics yeah. of it. Sure, sure. You know, and it was, you know, it was pretty amazing to me anyway. And I, I, uh, I even begin, began to hear the change from the, you know, the key you're in uh, going to the minor key that, you know, accompanied that particular key. Uh, I, could, I, you know, I can't explain this even now, <laughs> but I knew where it, I knew where it went because I knew where the pattern was on the uh, mm. on the piano. I love how um, self-driven that is. You know, it's not like uh, you know, mum and dad and the wicked school teacher have kept you behind school to do piano lessons eight hours a day against your will. It was like you actually drove all this. <laughs> you, it was, it was, right. you, you wanted to get involved. Right. No, I mean, I thought it was just the most amazing thing. And I love the melodies, which are mm. with me all the way through to today. You know? yeah. I, uh, and so I had a great, I, you know, it was just a wonderful thing. Uh, and here I am driving this big piano, you know, yeah. um, as a little guy. <laughs> and then that was my, 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 my mum and dad had listened to songs from the shows and the opera and all this. And dad had collected all these, uh, these different roles of music, you know. With the, uh, and then my, my eldest brother, we came in two packet, packets, our family. Mm -hmm. The first three that were pre-war, the Second World War. And then me and in 39, you know, and another sister and a brother coming after that, you know. So uh, there was, you know, yeah. My, my eldest brother, Jim, was probably about 13 years older than me and had a collection mm. of American jazz records. I absolutely, mm. like, loved it. I loved that, yeah. particularly the kind of swing that they played mm. with, you know, uh, and and I, you know, I kind of gravitated that way. Actually, mm. <laughs> my sisters were were listening, were crazy about Nat King Cole mm. and and uh, Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby at the time. So there was that going on, uh, and there was me, 
flailing away at the piano. <laughs> you must have made, you know, when you're taking in these influences and, you know, copying yeah. the pianola and listening to the records and going back. And then, of course, you you develop your own musicality in, in yourself and, and you've written so many great songs. And I know your third choice is, is one by yourself, Freddie's Flight. So maybe tell us a little bit about uh, yeah. that and how that might relate, how, how it comes right. from you, do you know what I mean? Something, something slightly different. Well, I mean, if I if I had a big band, I I would like it to sound like that. In fact, <laughs> but the thing <laughs> is that you know, uh, Freddie Hubbard and I crossed paths many times. You know, and sat at the bar and talked and everything. And you know, he said, "Bry, we ought to do something together." And I said, "I'd love that. I'd love that." And we we kept kind of you know when he was in town or he was too busy or whatever or too stoned who knows mm. uh, you know we never really kind of got it together except all of a sudden a producer called me and said listen next monday i'm uh, i'm producing an album by uh you know freddie and uh he'd like you to play on it i said absolutely i will be there tell me where the studio is and i went there at the time and we waited and waited and it, it went from 10 o'clock in the morning right the way through to about two or three in the afternoon and no Freddy. Mm. Oh, no. <laughs> and so we, I still don't know what happened, but uh, anyway, he was, he didn't turn up. So that was that, you know, and uh, I thought, damn it. And they'd asked me to write some things for the, for the album. And one of which was, Freddie's flight, but it didn't have a, you know, it didn't have a, a, a signature or, a, a, you know, a title. Mm. And mm. so every time I went, went over it afterwards, I went, you know, I'm, I'm going to record this at some point. Um, what do I call it? It became Freddie's flight because I don't know whether he flew away to somewhere or other, but he disappeared <laughs> after that. That's good. You got something out of it anyway. Well, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Freddie, you know, the stuff that he did with uh, Herbie Hancock and different people and his own albums. I think I, I sell it all. I have his, his vinyl 
back in the studio here somewhere, you know. It's lovely that you so, can, um, you know, end up working with these people that you admired from a, from a distance. I mean, you must, when, when I look through, there's a brilliant page on your website where it kind of lists all the people you've played with. And the list yeah. is incredible. It is, it is God's phone book. It's amazing. It's, you know, every, every <laughs> major band. And uh, it, it must have just been a, a crazy journey for you to, to be listening to some of these people and then suddenly find yourself in the same studio, on the same stage, and the same tour. I mean, they, they suddenly must become people, I guess. And I, I, maybe that changes the way you look at it. But there must be an awful lot of dream fulfillment in your life, you know, where, you, where you've, you've, you've really lusted after a piece of music and then you've found the person that's done it and actually got the chance to share space with them. Right. Well, yeah, because being a British musician, and particularly mm. coming from the jazz side, you know, um, I think that every, every jazz musician in England, you know, his dream was to play in the United States. That's where the, that's where the music came from. Yeah. Um, and so and so did I, and I never imagined that I would ever do that. But then I've, I still have this uh this memory in technicolor of me and julie standing on the and the band you know standing on the on the on the stage at the fillmore east mm. and being applauded by the you know a standing ovation and i was wow oh <laughs> is this really <laughs> happening pinch me i'm dreaming <laughs> And uh, <laughs> and then getting a, a second, get a second encore. I, I passed Miles Davis talking to somebody backstage, but I didn't. You know, I, I went up thinking I could introduce myself, and I thought, "Don't be silly." And he's talking <laughs> to somebody, <laughs> and so I actually funked out and uh, and uh, and and walked by. You know, mm. but uh, there was my idol. You know, the other guy was like Coltrane, and uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I I did meet uh, Cannibal Adderley. Oh, amazing! And wow. Joe, Joe Savinol and those guys, yeah. and they were playing when we played in uh, in uh, San Francisco for the first time. And the in the uh, this this time the the Fillmore, but West <laughs> Fillmore. <laughs> so we were getting ready, and we were just kind of looning around in the afternoon, and we had two very beautiful ladies that uh, were working for promotion, you know, for Atlantic Records. And mm -hmm. they, they said, by the way, Brian, you know, uh, do you like, do you like jazz? I said, oh, I love it, you know. And they said, because my uncle is, you know, Cannibal Adderley. I said, what? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> they said, yeah, he's playing at the, I forget the name of it, the, the Great Western Music Hall or some, somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and uh, why do you want to go and see him? And I said, absolutely. You know, and there, there was talks with, uh, about me doing an album with uh, his his brother, you know, Nat Adderley. So I said, well, yeah, maybe this is the time. And I told them, and they said, come with us. And um, normally, when I was in a you know a jazz club, everyone was like, shh, shh don't talk. You know, it's all very, you know, and, and uh, because of that and that attitude, Ronnie's. Ronnie Scott's became known as the Temple of Doom. <laughs> you go in, you go in there, and it was like, 
what's happened? Has everybody died? Mm. <laughs> Still like that in there. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Anyway, I go. I we we go into this this uh, uh, this club and it's raving. Mm. They're on stage and they're like hand jiving to each other's solos and, and it was like a big kind of like gospel meeting just about mm. <laughs> it was ridiculous and so i i went up and here's here's an amazing uh boost to my ego at the time was uh i was introduced you know and uh, the girl said uncle, <laughs> uncle cannon this is this is <laughs> <laughs> and he bent down and I said, yeah, what is it, my darling? Um, this is our friend, this is Brian. He's from England and he plays. I said, wait a minute, aren't you supposed to be doing something with Nat at some point? You're that hot organ player from London, right? <laughs> that was like, oh my goodness me, from yeah, Cannonball. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I love the detail uh, of Uncle Cannon. Yeah. <laughs> Uncle Cannon. <laughs> Uncle Cannon. <laughs> <laughs> it was, those, you know, I was like, oh man, I'll remember that for the yeah, rest of my yeah. life. But what about, I mean, we were talking at the top of the chat about how obviously you've got this big retrospective, um, you know, of reissues coming out on Soul Bank. Are there any, um, are there any dreams that are yet to be fulfilled for you musically? Is there anything else that's kind of on your horizon that you got your eyes on now? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm still, you know, writing and, mm. uh, coming up with things that uh, come from the, uh, as a present from the universe. Mm. Uh, and so I will continue to do that. I, I don't have anything specific at the moment. I have nothing South Pacific at the moment. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to still, still kind of like uh, uh, carry on recording. Yeah. Soul Bank and my, my buddy, Greg Borman, who actually handles it, was well, done a phenomenal job. Yeah, and uh, he's been a fan for years and years, and plays organ himself. Yeah, and is completely mad actually. <laughs> uh, and so we speak the same language. <laughs> he sent me some lovely pictures of the two of you actually through the ages. I know he's been a fan for a long time. Yes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess I was just asking that because it seems like you've ticked off every single jazz legend you could have possibly worked with or encountered. It seems like there'd, there'd be kind of none more left to tick off. Well, I, I don't know about that, but, but um, when we were out after a while, we got a telephone call to our agency from uh, Maurice White. Oh, wow. The, uh, you know, well, yeah. Earth, Wind and Fire. Big and Earth, Wind, of, yeah. Earth, Wind and Fire were doing a... A, a kind of a, a mid a mid America tour, and they asked us to open for them, and and uh, about I think about a dozen concerts, something like that. And, and I and they I loved them, and so did them, yeah. so did the band, and uh, we knew their tunes. And I was able to. We went down and we were setting up, and Maurice came down and. I said, hey, we're very happy to have you. And I said, this is, you can't, I can't tell you what, I'm, you know, <laughs> what, what an amazing thing this is. You know, I mean, I'm so happy to be here. And uh, the keyboard player came down and I think he asked me a question about the track Second Wind, mm. something like that. Is that in a different time signature? I said, no, no, it's all 4-4. Four, four. <laughs> you know, I stood in the wings we did our we did our set, and then 
I stood in the wings and I saw them do their set, and that was the most incredible mm. music evening I think I can that I can think of actually. The vocals were just absolutely spot on. Yeah. You know, all the you know the brass section, all of it was yeah. just and and then the tunes themselves that we knew. I think if I could My go back God. to see anyone from from that period in the seventies, it would be Earth, Wind, and Fire when they oh, had the, when they had the emotions doing the backing vocals. <laughs> right. Just, yeah. I mean, incredible stage sets, incredible outfits, incredible rhythm section, incredible vocal. Yeah. I mean, just Absolutely, everything about yeah. it was tip top professional and a massive show. I mean, that, yeah. I can I can I tell you what I really like is uh, you're a man who's played. All around, I can still hear how much you loved that experience of being that close to those musicians and and being part of that. And that really is what the podcast is all about. Really, is we we try and find, you know, you might be a famous musician, but you're still a fan. And I think that really comes through. And it, it's been really lovely talking to you about it. I have to say, it's exactly what we were hoping for. Well, thank you so much. You know, and uh, you know, I mean, music is a to me, it's. A, the international language or the intergalactical man <laughs> language of planet Earth. I don't know whether there are gigs going on in different places. Who knows, you know, but uh, there's a signature that says this is from Earth. In fact, I, I, I did write a track called uh, Planet Earth Calling. <laughs> the amazing thing was to be, be able to go to another country like Japan. And uh, mm. I speak four languages, but not Japanese. Mm. And guys would come up with a an, an album under their arm, you know, mm. and uh, and struggle to tell us, you know, this tune is oh, I love that, <laughs> and I, it, you know, it's just kind of well, this this all makes sense. It makes so much sense, you know. Yeah. I am one of the most blessed people I think on the planet. I still love music for what it is. You know, mm. it's music. It's it's us saying, "Hey, if anybody's out there, you know." <laughs> I can and see then, the, the intergalactic tour is being plotted somewhere, <laughs> not, not far away. Exactly. Yeah. Well, they're getting there. You know. <laughs> Brian, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you again for chatting with us, and hopefully, we'll speak again soon. And I'm, I can't wait to hear more from the uh, from the reissue archive. Definitely. Right there, you go. Yeah. yeah. Thank yes, you, Brian. Deb, Deb, thank you so much for this. And uh, yeah, thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I hope we talk soon. Likewise. Okay. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed our conversation today with the wonderful Brian Auger, and let's be honest, how could you possibly not have enjoyed that charming, wonderful conversation, then uh, there is a little something you can do for us. We don't want your money. Well, you know, <laughs> if you want to send us money, that's fine. But, uh, we, you know, we're not doing a whip round or anything. The one thing you can do for us, which will cost you nothing but your time, is to like the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, review the podcast if you got a few words to spare, and also just send it to your friends, share it around. What we would really like is for more like-minded people to hear the podcast and get their ears involved. So that's what you can do. As my mum used to say, do you know what you could do for me? You could like, subscribe 
tell your friends and uh, we'll see you with the next episode. <laughs> <laughs>